into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, or as we say here, Pittsburgh, and not like a bottomless pit. Because you know what they say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm of course your host, Samson Kovach, welcoming you back to uh, part 20 of our Bible series. We are getting to the end of this, I'm, I'm telling you right now. The, uh, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is able to be seen um, I can only envision, depending on how much of the material I get past today, um, you know, uh, if we're going to have like one or two more, but I can guarantee you this, it is going to be some, uh, some good times. It's going to be some good stuff. All right. Um, we have been going over every, just about every topic dealing with the Bible that I could possibly think of in these last few um, oh my months, I guess. Wow. How has it been? I guess it's been that long. Yeah. Um, when dealing with people, because, you know, you have a lot of people um, that they come at the Bible and they attack it in a lot of different ways. And we were looking at the way that they attack it, that, hey, it's just been changed over the years, that you know, you can't trust what it is. How do you even know you have those books? Somebody made it up in the fifth century. I've heard those arguments before. Um, and But I, I think that the biggest one, regardless of what people tend to think about the Bible, whether they are atheist or Christian, the biggest thing that they do that's never learned, for some reason it's never really taught in church or taught anywhere actually, uh, well, I shouldn't say anywhere, but in a lot of places not talk, is Bible interpretation, what we've been going over, and understanding how people in the past interpreted it. Now, if I, you know, for example, I want to study about a um, um, one of the religions, one of the major religions, like... Um, you know, Islam or maybe a minor religion like Mormonism or Jehovah Witness or something like that. If I want to understand where they're coming from, I have to use their book. I have to understand it as they understand it and as they interpret it. And then I can get the understanding. If I pick it up and I interpret it in a way that I think that it should be done, then I'm always going to miss the mark in understanding what they believe. And it's the same thing whether you're a Christian or not. Whenever you're interpreting the Bible and you're reading back through church history and what people in the past thought about it. So we are going to continue on looking at how people in history interpreted the Bible and their hermeneutic principles that they used. We last left off here in the theology pit. Um, we had uh, we, we were talking about the early church hermeneutics, okay, and that was between the um, you know the first century to the fifth century. I think that was our time span there. And the four big ones that we talked about were the uh, the functional typological hermeneutic. Um, that was the one where, um, you know, you were looking for Christ in the Old Testament. You were looking for the functional meaning, okay? The, um, oh, what's the word for it? The, the orthopraxy, the right practice. Okay, there's orthodoxy, which is the right belief. Orthopraxy, which is right practice. And then I think orthopathy, which is the uh, right attitude. 
Um, and you have to have all three of those as a Christian. A lot of times it's hard to have all three of those. Um, but so you would have that functional typological hermeneutic. Um, then there was the authoritative hermeneutic that was used. And that is where you would be appealing to somebody that, um, you saw in authority, whether it was, um, you know, a a priest, pastor, bishop, uh, church council, um, the, the church itself, the, the capital C, um, allegorical was next. That was where you would find the hidden meaning behind the story, there would be a, you know, a a surface understanding, a a literal understanding, but that was to be ignored. You were looking for that spiritual understanding underneath that, that allegorical, that, you know, what, what else is there type thing. And then there was the um, historical grammatical hermeneutic. And that was one where you were asking the question, well, what did it mean then? What did it mean uh, uh, to the people that it was being written to? What did it mean to the person who was writing it? Um, What type of grammar are they using? What type of literature is it? And that helps your interpretation. So those were the four um, big ones in that time. And the last one is the one that we kind of gravitate towards, the historical grammatical one. And that's the one that kind of, that, that got the bad rap. So um, that one fell away for a little bit. So as we move into the uh, the Middle Ages here, or you know the the Dark Ages, as uh, as they are, are called pejoratively, um, even even Middle Ages is, is pejorative. Just all all of those names are. If you went through the uh, soteriology study, you understand uh, where that term comes from and and who um, termed it that way. But um, in a, a I mean, the reason why, uh, somebody asked me one time, why do we spend so much time studying this stuff? Like, why do we spend so much time studying theology? And I said to them, I was like, what better thing is there to study than than God himself and what he has revealed to us? And just diving into all those aspects of it. I mean, I just, I love this topic. And this is uh, another you know, place where we, it seems like sometimes we spend a lot of time. If, if you have people that have never really studied, um, how to study the Bible, uh, they, they spend, they they look at you saying you spend what, 20 hours talking about something that I just have faith in that I just believe. I don't need all that. Well, it depends on what you want to do with it. You know, I mean, I can do basic math, but if I want to do, you know, calculus or something like that, I need, to be trained. I need better math. I mean, there's, there's better stuff out there. So why not be trained and why not be out there? And, um, there's a lot of people out there that are going to challenge you. You know, scripture says to be ready in season and out of season, always with an answer for the hope that lies within you. And if you're, if part of your hope comes from what scripture says, you know, I mean, ultimately our, our hope and our faith is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if um, the place where we're getting that information, we, we need to have a degree of reliable, you know, reliable hope in that and, and understanding in that. Because if that's not true, it's going to be a lot harder for us to um, hold on to that concept. I mean, there are other different ways. There's historical, and then there's like, you know, natural histories and stuff like that. But the Bible is a central place. So this is why this is, you know, a really important topic. Um, Paul was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, and he said this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. 
And that's what we're doing here. So we're learning how to think of this as like, you know, sword drills. This is like, you know, if you're, you're, you're training for battle, you know, you're, you're, you're learning how to use your sword. This is the area that you're doing that. That's what, we, that's what we're a boot camp here in the theology pit. That's, that's what we do. So, um, we're going to be looking at some uh, stuff. We're, we're going to be moving up towards the Reformation today and probably into the Reformation. But um, I don't know how far into it we're going to get. There's a lot of ground to cover here. So let's get started. Um, going to read you a summary here that's, that's put together of this time period. So this time period between 500 to roughly 1500 AD. Remember at this time that there are not a lot of Bible translations that are happening. We have this this thousand year period here. So, summary. This period does not see positive development regarding hermeneutical method. With the rise of the institutional authority of the church, the medieval period saw a gradual shift from the priority of scripture to the priority of tradition. Jerome's translation of the scriptures into Latin, the Vulgate, was the official Bible used by the church. The original languages were rarely consulted, if at all. Glossus, the commentaries of the medieval period, did not struggle with the text itself, but were merely marginal notes in the scripture taken from church fathers. In essence, interpretation of the Bible was bound to what the early church fathers taught, not personal struggles with the text. During this period, the average lay person was not encouraged to read the Bible at all, for fear that heresy would be promoted. Eventually, tradition and scripture could only be interpreted by the teaching authority of the institution called the Magisterium. Now, when we went through our soteriology, okay, the the Salvation series, um, we discussed why those heresies came about and, and you know what the what the cause was of it and you could see how the church was you know protecting itself against that if you had people that could just interpret the bible however they wanted after the edict of milan was signed in 313 of course ad um, allowing christianity to be legal to where you know you didn't have to put your life on the line to possess a you know text of the new testament or a manuscript of it or a copy of it. So you could believe whatever you wanted at that point without, you know, without being persecuted, you know, without having your um, family thrown in prison, without being thrown to the lions, without having your hands cut off, anything like that, any of the tortures that um, I talked about at that time period. Because remember, like, you know, somebody came up to you and said, hey, uh, what do you got there? Oh, this is the Apocalypse of Peter. Oh, it's one of them Christian books, huh? You know what? We're rounding them up and we're burning them because, uh, you know, the, the emperor wants them all destroyed and stuff. And if you don't turn it over, we're going to kill you. So what do you do? You know, I mean, if you're carrying around a, a, a manuscript or a book or, you know, a letter or something, you're going to be pretty sure whether or not that it's the word of God because of that you know, type of influence. Now, another thing that happened during this time period that we discussed um, was the uh, the concept of the the Black Plague coming through and what it did and how you know it decimated the people, decimated the land, um, wiped out like a third of the population, uh, you know, all the problems that it was having, and then afterwards the um, 
you know, the abundance of, of work and, um, and money that there was, you know, at the time and people were spending a lot of money on, you know, the churches themselves. Okay. Um, the understanding of salvation being sanitive, um, was, you know, very prominent and, also, this sanitive understanding was that, you know, you received God's grace, you know, in measure in order for it to continually cleanse you and change you and thereby saving you. So, as many different ways as you could possibly get this God's grace, the better, okay? Um, I shouldn't say this, this God's grace, it sounds weird. Um, uh, you know, you could get God's grace, the better, whether it was by um, prayers, penance, um, uh, uh, going and visiting relics and, and paying for them, um, tithing, giving to the church, adorning the church, paying for statues, like all that stuff. That's why you see this big rise in all that, you know, at this time, you know, and, you know, people were starting to get, you know, a little more sensitive to the, um, to the, uh, orthopraxy, the right practice. And, you know, they were looking at what some of the priests were doing and some of the bishops were doing, and they were saying, hey, you know, that's not right. We really need to reform our behavior. And even the church was saying, yeah, absolutely we do. We're, we're kind of a hot mess here. You know, we have, we got, we have problems with, uh, with simony, which is, you know, people buying their way into the, um, uh, in, into the bishopric. And if you're wondering where that comes from, that uh, comes from the book of Acts. Um, uh, Simon, the sorcerer, when he saw the apostles uh, performing miracles, went and said, I'll pay you for, for that. And, you know, they uh, cursed him and everything, you know, they yelled at him for that. But, um, but that's where the, the word Simon, he comes from for that practice to purchase a, um, you know, a bishopric. Or just a, uh, I guess, I guess not exactly a bishopric. I mean, it, a bishopric was definitely one of them, but any any potential office within within the church, rather than going through it, and uh, nepotism was also really big. And you had a problem with uh, since priests couldn't marry, well, they just had mistresses all over the place, and then you know uh, they had you know children running around everywhere, and eventually you know it was getting to the point where they were able to. Um, pass down what was the church's uh, property and things like that to their children. It came in the private hands and really, and people are just like, Oh man, you know, this is crazy. We need, we need to do something about it. And you had some people that rose up. Um, but some of the people that rose up, you know, they started saying, Hey, um, you know, where we're getting our information from, where we're getting our tradition from, and, you know, the authority that it has is based on something. Perhaps we should take a closer look at it, you know. Maybe it would be better if people could actually read it, you know, actually understand it. Um, or just have it to be in more abundance. I mean, um, Johann Sebastian Bach, the composer, you know, whenever he was not, and, and he wasn't this early, but I'm, I'm just saying... Whenever he was, you know, working for a church and, you know, he wasn't uh, playing music or wasn't allowed to play music or wasn't playing music at the time or writing music, um, he was teaching Latin courses to people. Um, this is primarily why, um, 
you know, the, the church at the time, uh, this was before the Protestant Reformation, of course, and the ability to be able to read Latin meant that you were able then to read uh, the Vulgate, to read the Bible, and to understand the commentary better, to understand um, the magisterial authority better, the church better, and to actually be able to teach. So it's a way of um, you know, furthering the education of people and encouraging them to grow closer to uh, God. So there was a council that happened at 1229 AD called the, um, the Council of Taulaus. And in Canon 14, the Council of Taulaus said, we prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament unless anyone from motive of devotion should wish to have the Psalter or the brevity for divine office or the hours of the Blessed Virgin. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. Uh, Pope Pius VII from uh, 1800-1823 he said, It is evident from experience that the Holy Scriptures, when circulated in the vulgar tongue, have, through the temerity of men, produced more harm than benefit, eminently dangerous to the souls, undermining the very foundation of religion. So in the late Middle Ages, tradition as handed down through the apostolic succession began to be promoted not simply as an interpretation or a summary of scripture, the regula fide, but as a second avenue of revelation altogether, containing essential information not found in scripture. And a lot of people, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, boy, this is, this is really wrong. They shouldn't have been doing that. Well, I mean, think about the problems that we have with heretical understanding now. Okay, for example, uh, I, I briefly you know mentioned the Mormons there. Okay, um, the Mormons believe that you know Jesus when it said you know he has to go to see his other sheep or whatever that that means that before he ascended into heaven or you know whatever was whatever they believe was going on you know at this at this period of time. He took this obscure verse, and they said, Jesus went to the Americas, to North America, and he delivered the gospel there. Well, where are they getting this interpretation from? You know, you, you would ask yourself, if you've, never, if you've never heard that, you know, if you've never studied Mormonism, you've never understood that, you're sitting there thinking, where, are you, where is this coming from? Like, there's nothing about America Okay, first off, um, you know, America as a word, you know, wasn't coined until, what, the 15th, 16th century? Somewhere around there. You know, it was named after an Italian who, um, you know, he put forth theory that the, the new world that found was not connected to, um, uh, um, Oh, why am I, why just slip my head to India or to um, Asia Minor or anything like that? That it was its own separate continent, and so because of that theory that was that was proved right, um, you know, it was named after him. That's why the Americas are called the Americas and not the Columbuses or the um, Ericsons or you know anything else, any of the other people that were here. Um, so whenever you have this. 
concept of the Bible was written at a certain period of time and you need to interpret it that way. And then somebody comes along and they say, no, this is it. And as further proof, the Mormons would say, is that Joseph Smith in, I think it was the 1820s, 1830s, um, in Upper State, New York, in the Americas, found the golden tablets or golden plates and used his... um, you know, the, uh, magic spectacles or his uh, seer stone to read the neo hieroglyphics on it and translate the Book of Mormon. Okay, that talks about all kinds of uh, different stuff that we have no archaeological evidence for, like we do for the Bible. And then, before anybody could check them or test them, um, the angel, I think it was Gabriel, um, uh, took the golden plates and the tablets back up to heaven. So all we have are his word for it. And there were some witnesses that said that, yes, they had seen the uh, golden plates with their spirit eye. And so that's why, you know, it should be trusted. And you're hearing all this and you're just like, wait a minute. How, how are you using this to then interpret the Bible? You know, where... You shouldn't be doing that. Well, why shouldn't I be doing that? Give me a good reason why I shouldn't be doing that. You know, is is the reason because, you know, of the magisterial authority, your magisterial authority? And you say, well, no, I'm Protestant. It's not, I don't have a magisterial authority that comes over me and says it has to be this translation. Oh, so what? You're the only person that can interpret the Bible. Well, no, I'm not the only person that can interpret the Bible. So how do you know God's not speaking through me? He's only speaking through you. And well, I'm not saying that he's only speaking through me. So you can see how this goes. Well, they're kind of worried about the same thing. I mean, you talk to, I mean, Jehovah Witnesses are another one. They, they'll they use the King James Version. Of, well, no, they don't use King James Version of the Bible. That's the Mormons. And then they add to it. Um, they use the, uh, I think it's the New World Translation, where they've, changed the translation. They've gone in and they've taken the translation and, and, you know, they've, they've changed to say things that, you know, um, in, in, uh, John's gospel and it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. They put the letter a in there to say that he was like another God or a God type of thing. Um, but they believe that Jesus was the archangel Michael who came in flesh and then went back as the archangel Michael. Um, but this is one of the reasons why it's going on. They don't want these other translations going out because what if somebody translates it like that? And then that's allowed to proceed. Well, then you get heresies all over the place. Okay. You start getting people you know, denying all kinds of you know, church doctrines. You get them denying, um, you know, certain things that we hold to the Christian faith, Thir- certain things that we say, um, this is what would be the, um, the, the word sine qua non, okay, the without which not. Without this, you are not that. And we would say that one of the things is the deity of Jesus Christ. Without that you are not Christian. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, call yourself what you want, but you can't call yourself a Christian because that's a identifying attribute of Christianity. Okay. Another one, and this one gets to be a little bit more controversial, is the um, acceptance of the Trinity. Okay. 
uh, that you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, three in one. You know, one what, three who's, three consciousnesses. Um, you know, together in one. Um, the articulation of that is is different than the holding to it. But generally, that seems to be more of a church thing than a layman thing because a lot of laymen have a very hard time because they've never studied Trinitarianism. They don't they don't know how to articulate what do we mean by our triune God. How how does that Oh, you know, work together, but um, that would be another, you know, without which not sine qua non. Um, one more sine qua non that would have to exist is you have to believe that God exists. You cannot be an atheist Christian. Okay, so all of these different things are coming into play at this time. And people are saying, look, we've had heretics in the past who believed all sorts of different things. Uh, uh, There was a heretic that denied the hypostatic union of Christ, that he was truly man and truly God um, at the same time. You know, you had people like um, the the Nestorians, okay, that believed in Nestorianism, that you had like this divine Jesus and this human Jesus. And well, you know, sometimes he was speaking out of his humanity, sometimes he was speaking out of his divinity. Well, who died on the cross? And, you know, there's all sorts of problems like that. Um, We would say that that is very problematic, Okay, Um, I think the Coptic Christians today still hold to that. Um, It's the type of Christianity that Islam may have been exposed to. I'm guessing that it was exposed to because it was very prominent in northern Africa at the time. Um, And when you read through the Quran, it seems like they're responding to people who are Nestorians and just kind of think that Christians are a little bit nuts in, you know, what they're saying and and what they believe, but um, the method of interpretation generally that we use, the historical, grammatical, literary hermeneutic, um, that that is the method, the um, thing is the Antiochian uh, method that was then, uh, no, that yeah, the, yeah, the Antiochian, I believe, um, that that was the one that was associated with him, and that's why it was rejected. So you have this stuff going on at this time. I mean. People are not being distracted by, you know, football and TV and movies and video games and, you know, um, iPhones and stuff like that. What, you know, holds their attention, what their life revolves around and what they know very intimately is the ongoings of the church. What is happening? The church is very, very prominent in their life. They know everything about it. Okay. As much as they possibly can. And I'm not saying they know everything about the Bible. I'm saying they know everything about church life. They know everything about traditionalism. They know everything about about liturgy. They know everything about about servitude, about penance, about um, you know uh, authority, about you know what's what's going on. So you you have them as you look at them as like the protectors of this. They are going to tell me you know what I need to do in order to be saved. And in a way. Even though, you know, of course, you've listened to the theology pit through a lot of the stuff. You know that I, I disagree with that type of understanding of salvation, but it doesn't negate people being saved. But a lot of people do that today. They will go to the church and, and I mean, go to any Protestant website that claims to hold to the doctrine of justification. And I've ranted about this before. And, you know, they will have a section in there, what must I do to be saved? Just that very question undermines the whole understanding of the doctrine of justification. But again, um, go back to, you know, the, the salvation series for that. But this is the type of things that they're thinking about and that they're dealing with when they're understanding the Bible. And they're like, look, if we put a Bible in everyone's hands, all that's going to go away. People are not going to be lockstep uniform kind of, you know, growing together or going through this together. 
So, you had um, at the at this time there there developed this four uh, sense hermeneutic of the medieval period. So you had you know the literal, the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. I think I pronounced that an analogical. I can't speak this morning. Anyways, um, the first one, the literal, that would be if you looked at Jerusalem, okay, just the concept of Jerusalem. Come across Jerusalem in the Bible. How do you understand it? Well, the literal is that it's an ancient city, right? The allegorical is that it's the church. Every time it's talking about Jerusalem, it's actually talking about the church. The moral is the, uh, the faithful soul, okay? You personify um, Jerusalem and you are Jerusalem or you are reading about somebody whose name is Jerusalem and the things that are going on around them are, are sort of like, you know, them carrying a, a cross. I suppose it's a little like Pilgrim's Progress. You know, you, you have that kind of personification of it. And then the uh, anagogical, I can't talk. And that, and that A-N-A-G-O-G-I-C-A-L. So, anagogical, the heavenly city. Okay. So, the, this, this was, a, I guess, the same um, analogy. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyways, the letter shows us what um, God and our fathers did. The allegory shows us where our faith is hid. The moral meaning gives us rule of daily life. The analogy and anagogy shows us where we end our strife. So, um, in his book, Harmonutics, that I've referenced a couple times, Henry Verkler says, During the 14th and 15th centuries, dense ignorance prevailed concerning the content of Scripture. There were some doctors of divinity who had never read the Bible through its entirety. And that was completely possible, plausible, and understandable, because you also had um, canon law that you would be obeying and that you would, um, you know, be living out. And, you know, what is more important at this time, especially coming off the heels of the plague, you know, and during, during the plague is what must I do to be saved? All right. You know, I don't want to know that, you know, the long ending to the gospel of Mark probably shouldn't be there because it wasn't in the earlier manuscripts. I don't care about that. What must I do to be saved? My, my family is dying. What do we have to do? That's the mentality that they had at the time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. Samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, so um, in 1450, we had the invention of the printing press. And this did a lot for us because um, when you have the invention of the printing press, people can start learning in a, uh, a a bigger uh, degree. I, I'm not really saying that right. You could have more people learning at one time, okay? So you could have bigger classrooms. You could have bigger, uh, you know, lectures, you know, with, with groups of people there because you can pass out literature. 
um, you can propagate ideas faster. All right, people can learn because you don't have someone handwriting something. So you can have something, you can write something out, you can have it printed, and then you can make thousands of copies and have those all passed out. In the time that it would take to, you know, handwrite out one of them, you now have thousands. And so, you know, people started getting more educated generally. And because of this, this is why you had the scholastics and you had the humanists in the church that came about and were saying, add fontes to the sources, to the fountain, where it came from. You know what? We were reading this stuff that the people are printing and we're looking at, you know, stories of old. Okay. And we're looking at, you know, what what the Greeks did and what the Romans did. And people were really smart back then. And we want to be smart too. We need to get smarter. Let's go back to being smart. And there was this whole revival, okay, this this Renaissance period of let's get smarter just in general. And so let's go back to the sources, back to where the smart people were. And we're getting smarter too. Now, this is why, you know, it's called the Middle Ages because they would say you would have these two peaks of intelligence, us and them back there. And in between where all this darkness and idiocy. And so we're the smart ones. All right. So with the invention of the printing press, history saw a great revival of intellectual life and literacy among the common man. The church began to return to a study of the original biblical languages. Another thing that happened to help with these biblical languages is ironically with Islam, by Islam wiping out, um, you know, all of the churches in Northern Africa. Um, Alexandria was in Northern Africa and they had really good manuscripts and really good uh, copying practices. And those manuscripts got pushed northward. And then um, in the, I think it was the 12th century, you had Islam come through and sack uh, Constantinople. And it pushed all those manuscripts and all those teachers and everyone, you know, um, uh, west, you know, in towards Rome and towards Europe and in France. And it was like, you know, very recently after that, that all the stuff that they opened up, you know, the first um, uh, schools and courses and classes for understanding Koine Greek because these monks, you know, were then, you know, a part of this and they could, they could teach it. This was their, their lives. This is what they did. So you got all these, you know, really good manuscripts and this good understanding of, of Greek happening. Okay. Um, so, uh, people became less reliant upon the interpretation of the institutionalized church for their understanding of scripture. Uh, the first, one of the first things, I think the very first thing that was printed on the, the printing press was the Bible. And I believe that it was the, correct me if I'm wrong, the, it was probably like the Geneva Bible or something like that. Um, you know, one of the earliest uh, English translations of the Bible. So, you know, there were translations of it in the common tongue. Whether or not they were good was, you know, up for debate, um, especially if you don't have a lot of money and time and stuff, you know, uh, behind it. But, you know, they would get better and better. Before the King James Version came, you did have, you know, um, in different English Bibles before then. Just um, King James is just the most famous. Um, so the subjectivity of the allegorical method and the eventual abuse of the authoritative method caused many people to return to the sources themselves. 
Um, the, that was the Ad Fonts cry, Ad Fontes, to the sources. Um, with this return to the sources came a resurgence of the literal or historical grammatical method of interpretation. The one that everybody said, you know, hey, we don't like it because a heretic, you know, held to it. There also came a great realization of the abuses of the institutionalized church, and hence came the Great Reformation. Now, whether or not these abuses within the church were deliberate, that's a different subject, okay? Some people can say some of them were deliberate, and there are people in there that were deliberately abusing them, but there were others that would say, no, they weren't deliberately abused. Um, these people were very sincere, and they thought that this was the best way. You can't fault them for that, okay? So... Um, the reformers believed that scripture must be understood in their original historical grammatical literary context, as a lot of Protestants do today, and I think as you know, Vatican II has, has said also. Um, but you would have um, with with the Roman Catholics, though, you would still have the magisterial authority, you know, interpreting that. But um, it's gotten better. People are actually allowed to, you know, study. Uh, Martin Luther, who really sparked the Reformation, who, you know, was the, I would say, the original Reformation. I, I believe that he is the one who should be called, you know, Reformer, and he was a, a Reformed Catholic. And, you know, I would put myself in that in that same position. I'm much more uh, Lutheran than I am any, anything else, but Paleo-Lutheran, uh, ancient Lutheran, in that sentiment. Not in what Luther believed, ironically. Um uh, Luther had a lot of different ideas that I think contradicted his doctrine of justification, but uh, my understanding of salvation is very, very much Paleo-Lutheran. And um, he had a mouth on him, and I think everybody that came after him, the the uh, Ulrich Zwingli's and the um, John Wesley's and the John Calvin's, um, that they all... Um, I, w I would call them Protestants, the protesters, okay? Because they just seemed to protest anything that was Roman, where he was a reformer, truly, he was trying to actually reform the church, change the church from the inside. It wasn't until, you know, papal bulls and he was excommunicated and everything that happened there. Um, that, 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 so that's where I kind of draw my line of, of delineation there that, you know, the later, the second generation of reformers are the ones that are piggybacking on him. You know, they're the JV squad, in my opinion. And I know that makes people mad, but eh, I'm sorry. That's my, that's just my personal throw out there. So. That's what I was bad at what Martin Luther says. Martin Luther rejected the allegorical interpretation, the, the interpretation where you find the hidden meaning in it. And he called it, he called this method of interpretation. It's like, Luther, what do you think of, of an allegorical method? What do I think? It's dirt, scum, and absolute loose rags. So, you know, that's very harsh at that time period. He probably used probably used some other four-letter words. He did like to drink and, you know, cursed very much and insulted people very much. So, you know, he did not like that. He found that to just be worthless and almost, you know, abusive to uh, Scripture to do that. John Calvin believed that the allegorical method, that allegory was an invention of Satan meant to obscure the plain and true meaning of Scripture. So that, you know, if you're using that method, you are an agent of Satan. The reform believers, the reformers believed in the perspicuity of scripture. Now, I know you're sitting there saying perspicuity. What does that even mean? Well, ironically, perspicuity means clarity. Um, 
that the most important doctrines of Scripture were clear enough for any layman to understand. This was in contradistinction to the Roman Catholic belief that the Scriptures have had a, a hidden meaning that can only be found by the institutional church's magisterial authority. Now, if you wanted to kind of swing this the other direction in lumping them in with a heretic, the Gnostics also held to, you know, secret knowledge that was only passed down to them and, you know, only through them could it be understood. Um, and their, you know, that their writings were, you know, equal with scripture, with the Gnostic gospels. And we went through some of those. So, um, if now I don't want I don't want this to you know be misunderstood. What they're saying is that if the average person was to pick up the Bible and read some of it, especially if you are a, a Western person, okay, especially someone in America, and you read the New Testament, okay, because it's written with a Western mindset, with a Western understanding, you would be able to find salvation in that you would be able to understand the gospel. You would be able to understand what Christ had done for you and the gospel message. It would be clear. Anybody that picked it up, if you just asked them the one simple thing, what's the main point of that? They would say, well, Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And because of that, you know, we are reconciled to God and we need to be good to each other. That, I mean, that that's one of the things that would just jump out at them. They would say, yeah, I mean, of all the things, if you ask me, or, or give me a book report of the New Testament. And they'd say, um, I don't know, a guy named Jesus, he was born, um, died on the cross for our sins. Um, you know, people worshiped him as God. Um, you know, he he was God. Like, you know, I mean, that's that was what would come up. The, the good news is that you have been reconciled to God. Um, you know, Christ was the uh, propitiation. Okay. He um, took the divine wrath of God. I mean, I don't think that they would say that. I don't know how much they'd get out of that, but um, propitiation is, is the divine wrath that was, um, that was satisfied um, through Christ and also the forgiveness of sins. That's what was accomplished through, um, through the atonement. Um, but that, that's what they're saying. They're not saying that anybody can pick up the Bible and read it and understand it. And a lot of times that's how it's understood and that's how it's taken. That, you know, you can, especially the Old Testament, you can read the Old Testament and be like, oh yeah, I understand this. It It's written for an Eastern mindset. It's It has, you know, a certain understanding to it. And really, you have to understand the New Testament before you can understand the Old Testament. And I know chronologically, you would say, well, what about the people back then? And that, well, that's a, kind of a different story. But the way that we understand it um, through the historical grammatical hermeneutic here is to take it as a whole. And we would read it Christologically and, you know, with the full revelation. And that's the proper way of doing it. Um to say it's the improper way, I, I would argue and say that you don't do that because, you know, it would, uh, it, in, in Genesis, where it said, um, you know, where God goes to create man, and he says, let us make man in our own image. Okay, what does he mean, let us? Who's he talking to? And, so, and if anybody said anything, you know, well, that he's talking to the heavenly beings there, or he's talking to the angels, or he's talking to, you know, you'd have to stop and say, wait, where are you getting that from? Because there is no mention of angelic beings anywhere before that in Genesis. 
So where are you getting that understanding from? And they'd say, well, you know, there are angels in the Bible and that's probably what he's talking about. Hang on. So you've read ahead and now you're bringing that meaning back. They wouldn't have a problem doing that. But for some reason, if you read further ahead and then bring that meaning back in, then that, you know, some people say, well, that's a, that's a problem. You can't do that. No, you have to actually go through the entire, you know, uh, revelation. It's a progressive revelation that God has given us, you know, and now we're going through a progressive understanding. That's sort of where we're at now with this hermeneutical study, um, the progressive understanding. But we're not saying, you know, that you can just pick it up and because you're a Christian or because it's the word of God, you can understand it without any type of study or without any type of education. You can understand it well enough to be able to convey the gospel message and that that is clear enough. But to understand the richness and the depth of it, that takes study, that takes teachers, that takes a magisterial authority. It does. But the very plain meaning of it and the understanding of the gospel message is within the grasp of the average person. Okay. And we've gone through the hermeneutical method before with the triangle in the bottom left-hand corner, there being the original audience in the, um, the top point of the triangle, that that is our, um, uh, uh, comparing scripture with scripture, comparing scripture with our emotions, comparing scripture with, um, you know, our experience with reason, you know, extracting that timeless principle. Okay. We understand that, but you know, who cares? What does that mean? And then that, you know, is, is, you know, what we apply to ourselves today. Okay. So that was what the Reformation was doing. Now the modern church here, um, that would be from 1800 to the present. Okay. So our Reformation was 1500, 1800 uh, time period, uh, when all this stuff was, uh, was coming about. Um, you know, you're getting your different translations of the Bible. The King James Bible came out, the 1611, like, you know, all that stuff. Um, Martin Luther's translation uh, of, of the Bible, you know, came about into, the, into German, into the common tongue. So, the modern hermeneutic, uh, the summary for that is the rise of rationalism caused people to begin placing reason above scripture. No longer did scripture interpret reason, but reason interpreted scripture. Liberalism and the higher critical method challenged the historicity of scripture, the very foundation of historical grammatical hermeneutics. Now, there's a couple different reasons for this, and let, let me get through the summary here, and then I'll come back to that. Some retreated to fundamentalism, which downplayed the role of man in scripture. Many joined the liberals, while others sought to find Christ not in scriptures, uh, not in the scriptures themselves, but through a subjective encounter with him as they read the scriptures. They were called neo-orthodox. This paved the way for today's full-blown subjective postmodern hermeneutic where the scriptures mean whatever you want them to mean, or the reader response hermeneutic. To be sure, many evangelicals have carried on the tradition of the reformers in seeking the literal meaning of, of the scriptures, but sadly, to be evangelical these days does not say much about one's hermeneutical method as it should. A lot of times, Evangelical is just a type of denomination or a type of delineation of a denomination. All right. So let me go back through this summary and kind of like hit some of the stuff that it talked about. Um, Because it may, you know, you may get lost on a little bit of understanding of what this stuff is. Okay. Um, The higher critical method. Um, At this time, you started getting 
um, the understanding of Darwinian evolution. Okay. And I don't want to make this a, you know, evolution creation debate, but I want people to understand that there is a particular world shift mindset that happens whenever you say that everything was created through a natural process and not by God. And you remove God from the equation because you can explain that birds have different kinds of beaks because they eat different kinds of nuts. All right. I'm I, I, sorry. That was facetious of me. But anyways, um, there is this mindset. There is this world shift. Whenever you look back into history and you look back at what's happening, um, people started treating people a lot worse. They stopped seeing them as you know, made in God's image and just as evolved monkeys. And yet people that were more evolved and people who were less evolved. Okay. Um, people who were more evolved, um, you know, uh, paler, white skin, blue eyes, blonde hair. Um, that's why England is called England. Um, angel land is what it means. Anglican, you know, is, is angelic, you know, the angelic understanding that's why these people were um, uh, proselytized, you know, to, um, you know, back in the sixth century, why St. Augustine was sent to them, you know, because uh, Gregory the Great saw some slaves from, um, you know, Angoland from, you know, and he said they look like angels. They're beautiful. These people need to hear about Christ. So they sent them up. Um, but, you know, that mentality shift on here's a beautiful type of people that God has created to, we are more evolved. Okay. So because we are more evolved and it's survival of the fittest, then, you know, we can persecute those people that are below us, you know, just from physical appearance, you can tell that because they have not evolved enough. So they're closer to animals. So they're not real humans. And people started treating people a lot worse. Um, you know, I, and this was ironically at the time of what was called the Enlightenment. So you have people saying, "Look how great we are! Look how smart we are!" It's the the modernist um, epistemology, you know, study of how we come to know what truth is. The modernist understanding of man is getting better. Okay, look how great we are! We're doing all kinds of you know great things. We are getting better. And then um, you know the when the twentieth century hit. Uh, man, you know, we got just a hundred years, like after this, you know, you have World War One, World War Two, um, you know, Korean War, you have all these like horrible things. It was, I mean, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in, in the history of mankind. And people were just like, whoa, maybe we're not getting better. Maybe we're getting worse. And this is when postmodernism uh, started coming in. But this higher critical method challenging saying, well, how do you really know? that the Bible is true. A lot of what this series has been on is a direct challenge against this higher critical method. The fact that I've gone through and shown how we can trust what words we have, how we know how many manuscripts they are, how we know we have the right books, all that, that is um, a response to the challenges of the higher critical method that is coming at us. I mean, you've experienced it more than likely, without knowing what it was. This is where it comes from. And it's this this worldview shift understanding. And, you know, I mean, and this is the type of thing where it says, yeah, you know, her heretics are bad, heretic, you know, but what comes out of them is is you know, very fruitful with, with the church's response. So think about it. Without this, this challenge 
of this higher textual criticism, this 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 method, um, you we wouldn't have you know passionate studies like this where you could where you're actually getting all this great information about the Word of God, and it can enrich you. Um, so. You know, we thank you know we're thankful for that and liberalism where eh, you know it, it's it's leading into that to just you know it, it can just mean what it, you want it to mean type thing. Now, when people retreated into fundamentalism, this is where the church stepped out of the intellectual arena. They didn't want to deal with it because they weren't equipped for it. This was something new that was coming at them, and they were like, "We don't." know how to deal with this. So, you know what? I just believe it because the Bible says it. And whenever you do that and you and you say the problem is people are trying to be too reasonable and too rational with it. Okay? If somebody can't figure out how Noah got every single animal, two of every single animal on the entire planet into an ark that was, you know, so many feet by so many feet, swished in there, that floated for 40 days. Well, then Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. That was, I mean, that was the argument that then they would say that that's a reasonable argument that just drives them crazy. You know, that the, the logistics of that story. All right, uh, and you'll probably see that online. People, what about what about you know, Noah? How did he get all that? Where did he put the penguins? Like you know that sort of stuff. Um, but that's of course somebody that doesn't have any um, hermeneutical method. They they just have a literal you know understanding, and they you know and and they're in a way short circuiting it, and they're also cultural bigots. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that you know when we get to some of the. Um, the, the problems, the problematic interpretations that people use today. Anyways, um, so people started, you know, just um, saying, no, you can't have reason. We just take the literal understanding of it. And generally, the King James Version is the, the best, you know, English translation here with all of its mistakes, with all of its additions that were in it that we talked about before, you know, some of the, you know, our favorite verses that aren't in the Bible, those sort of things. And they started... Um, reading it, and some people having subjective encounters. This is why you have the people, um, uh, the, the Pentecostals that came along, that they are the ones that say that there was this like second Pentecost at this time, the second revival, because they believed in literally what happened and that it should happen today. And some people would say from, from this period that the original gospel was lost and it wasn't recovered until this period, until we got back. And it's our faith that brings it about. Faith is a force. Faith is a power. It's something that we exercise. We can speak things into existence. Um, you know, the supernatural sign gifts started seeing recurrences of them, um, slain in the spirit. People, people being, uh, people speaking in tongues, prophesying, seeing visions, um, going into trances where God would speak with them. That's why um, you know a, a branch of the um, uh, the the Mennonites named after Menosimus, who we went through in in soteriology. Um, you know, they a, a branch of them called the Quakers. Well, that's why they were called the Quakers because they would they would shake and fall down, you know, and quake and and you know the way their services uh, happened. This is this is all from this this fundamentalist Pentecostal type understanding. Um, this is where you get the the snake handlers, the people you know um, uh, holding snakes and being bitten by them and drinking strychnine and and doing all this stuff because of a variant that shouldn't be in your Bible at the long ending of Mark that says you know he will pick up um, 
uh, you know, serpents, deadly serpents, and they will not harm him. He will drink deadly poisons and they will not, you know, you would think at, at some point, you know, on the, on the ride to the hospital, somebody, some paramedic or something would say, you know, the stuff that you're practicing, that's not found in some of the earliest manuscripts, but that wouldn't matter. The, the, the fundamentalistic idea, the fundamentalism, I should say, there's a difference between fundamentals and fundamentalism. Okay. Um, this then paved the way to the full-blown postmodern subjective hermeneutic where you can just open up the Bible, read it, what does it mean to me? And just pull it out of context and say, oh, the Bible says this, that must mean that for me. Or you sit in a Bible study and, and you read a passage, well, what does it mean to you? Well, what does it mean to you? Well, what does it mean to you? As though if all of you get together and say, huh, I feel that way too. That's what that means to me also. Um, you know, Then all of a sudden, that's what, that's what it means. You know, and, and I've said before, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it meant. And then if what it meant, if the timeless principle is applied to your life, then that's what it means to you. Not, I just read this and I think that, you know. Um, you know, I can't read. Uh, Paul, you know, was stoned many times in the streets. Oh, okay, I can go smoke pot. Pot should be legal. No, that's not, that's not how you interpret scripture, okay? I'm sure if you got a bunch of, you know, stoners together and had them read that passage of scripture, they'd all start giggling and say, yeah, you know, that's why I smoke weed, you know, whatever. Um, but, um, a lot of evangelicals then at the time, and think of an evangelical sort of like a nice fundamentalist. They wanted to take the, the fundamental aspects of it, but they didn't want to excuse themselves from the intellectual world even though, you know, it happened. I mean, you think about a lot of the great colleges, okay? Um, Harvard, Yale, those were seminaries, okay? Theology was called the queen of the sciences, all right? We, uh, because, you know, theology and hermeneutics, what we're doing here, it's the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's an art because there is, you know, a way of going about doing it, but it's a science that there are rules, and the better that you practice at the science with these rules, the better you'll get at it, which is you know what brings the artistic aspect into it and, and how you're able to, to paint this wonderful picture and this understanding of what's going on. Um, but we stepped away from that. We stepped out of the intellectual atmosphere. We stepped out of the educational aspect of it. And that was a mistake. And you see where our educational system has gone in the last, you know, 100 years, 120 years or so. I mean, it's just, it's in shambles because of that. Because of, you know, we refuse to allow, you know, reason and hermeneutics to meld together, you know, to to understand Um but the problem was that the evangelicals, they, after they kind of formed their groups, and really it was like in the 1960s that you got these evangelical churches that came out that started putting this stuff forward. Actually, the Bible I use, the Net Bible, the one I talk about, that's the first evangelical translation of the Bible, and it's a translator's Bible. That's why it has like 62,000 footnotes that are textual critic notes on, you know, not what the, you know, what they think it says, interpret it, but why, where they got their, you know, why they translate it the way that they did, where they got their information from, and what are some other meanings that it could possibly have. You know, you have textual notes, you have um, side notes, you have critical notes, you have, you know, all kinds of things in it. It's, it's a great translation. And that's the aspect where it is. But evangelicals today, they don't know that. They don't hold to that. They don't, um, you know, agree uh, with the importance of this type of understanding. And a lot of times when you go to evangelical churches, it's just a Bible study church. 
The Sunday schools are Bible study, the sermons a Bible study, and Bible studies are Bible studies. Anything that you do, it's just a Bible study. But the interpretive method and the hermeneutics and the bibliology that we're studying here, they don't do. Hey, email me, Samson at SamsonStick.com. Visit me on Facebook at Theology Pit. And now it's definitely time to close down the pit. Mm-hmm.